Greetings and welcome to this episode of Selling Gene the Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Harris, and my guest for today is Anish Suri. He is the president and CSO of Q Biopharma. Anish, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having us, Aaron. Delighted to be here. Good, good. All right, we're going to jump right in like we always do. So talk to us about Q Biopharma, which, as we know, is a clinical stage biopharmaceutical company and your engineering a novel class of injectable biologics, which we're going to get into uh, further down in our conversation, uh, that selectively engages and modulates targeted T cells directly within the body to transform the treatment of cancer. So talk us through what that means, break all that down. That was quite a mouthful. So tell us exactly what that means and, and what's up at Q Biopharma. Sure, Aaron. So the vision of the company and the foundational science was really born out of the well-acknowledged fact now that the immune system harnesses the potential to recognize and destroy cancers if manipulated selectively and safely. And that's the genesis of the company is looking at a novel biologic platform that goes after the very nature's signals, nature's cues, hence the name of the company, to selectively harness those generate biologic molecules to selectively modulate disease-relevant T-cells. And that's very different than broad immunotherapies that broadly modulate the immune system, either broadly activate for cancer immunotherapy, which has obviously issues with toxicities and, 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 and safety considerations, or broadly immunosuppression for autoimmunity. So we've recognized the fact that only a very small fraction of the immune system needs to be regulated, which is the nature's way of functioning. And we believe we have a technology here that can selectively act upon only those T cells that are relevant to a particular given uh, disease specificity. Good, good. Okay. Thank you for that. Now, before we really dive into the, the true science behind it. I want to talk a little bit about what is the current immuno-oncology development landscape and what is the unmet need there? Sure. So let's start with the positive. The positive is we have now recognized that the immune system uh, could be a very powerful weapon for targeting cancers and destroying them. Those were the early data with checkpoint inhibitors that we got, and I was very fortunate to be at Bristol-Myers Squibb when the first of these molecules came to the market, anti-CTLF-4, anti-PD-1s. What we then have realized subsequently is most patients do not derive benefit from these sorts of approaches. And, and there's a disconnect there. So you have the potential, but you don't have the absolute benefit. And what's the gap in the middle? The gap in the middle, we believe, is around issues surrounding selectivity, around patient safety, selectively modulating the system, safely modulating the system in a targeted manner to be able to bring about a higher order of efficacy. We believe firmly that that's the gap that the, that the marketplace uh, you know, exists. And we and others, by the way, are, are attempting to sort of address some of the concerns there in different modalities and different spaces of biology. But there's a fundamental disconnect between the potential that can be versus what it is today. Sure, sure. Okay. I want to talk a little bit about how Q's platform and biologics, how they work. So as I understand it, Q's biologics, they're not, they're not strictly cell therapies, but that they 
mimic the natural mechanism of APCs during an anti-cancer response. So talk us through what your platform is and how it works. Sure. So Erin, just going back, you know, just for some very basic fundamental immunological uh, considerations, for any given disease, only a small fraction of your T cells, which are your body's adaptive immune system repertoire, are specific for a given antigen. So if you think about cancer immunotherapy, 99% of the T cells in an individual, I'd say 99.9%, and these are hard numbers, have no relevance to that. So when you broadly activate every T cell, are you really serving uh, the appropriate reaction that you want to achieve? That's, that's the problem. Now, how is that specificity achieved is by each T cell has a unique molecule called the T cell receptor that engages its cognate antigen on a, on a HLA or a MHC molecule that's on the antigen presenting cell, like a dendritic cell, like a macrophage. That's what defines the specificity of the reaction. If you could selectively only focus on tumor antigen specific T cells and deliver signals to those very T cells, you found a way of not carpet bombing the entire immune system, but rather very tailored combustion. It's sort of like analogous to you don't need to set your house on fire to light up your stove. That's the analogy we use here. So we found a way to take those natural ligands that an APC presents vis-a-vis -vis these peptide HLA molecules, stabilize them through very clever protein engineering. The genesis of the company, the founders came out of Albert Einstein College of Medicine with a very strong basis in protein engineering. So it's looking at the lens of T cell reactivity, not through the immunological lens initially, but through the lens of protein engineering and making these modules as antibody fusion proteins to then only selectively target those T cells that are relevant to that in the body directly. It's the same that in other words, what cell therapy tries to achieve with TCRT and adoptive cell therapy, except there, your ex vivo expanding to a large number, infusing those very T cells back in the patient with the hope that they do something. And indeed, indeed the early data looks very encouraging. We think we have a biologic that can essentially do something very similar except directly in the patient without having the cumbersome ex vivo manufacturability and, and, and the challenges and the costs and considerations that go with cell therapy applications. But how, so how are they different from the targeted T cell therapies such as CAR-T, for example? Yeah, so CAR-T, you're putting in a chimeric receptor that has a T cell signaling domain, but the extracellular domain is actually recognizing a tumor surface antigen with an antibody fragment or related fragment like that. This is actually a bona fide tumor specific T cell being modulated that's recognizing the tumor cell via its T cell receptor. It's very analogous in sort of, they both are recognizing tumor specific determinants. In one instance, you have an ex vivo manipulation. In this instance, it's your own very natural repertoire within the patient that's being expanded by this biologic to those very T cells that have the tumor specificity. And that's a big difference between those sort of two approaches, but fundamentally the focus is still on the tumor cell mm -hmm. in terms of recognition and destruction. Good, good. Okay. I want to talk a little bit about um, the amino therapies that are currently in development um, that are leveraging interleukin-2, IL-2. What's different from Q's biologics? Can you talk us through that? 
Yeah, so IL-2 is a very deliberate decision, Erin, and I'm glad you brought that up because IL-2 is an example of a great molecule that we know has anti-cancer potential, but has been limited because of safety and lack of tolerability. Uh, IL-2 was approved, is approved drug for wild-type IL-2 for metastatic melanoma and renal cell carcinoma, but it has significant safety issues because it essentially activates every T cell when the cytokine is given soluble. As a, as a treatment regimen. So every T cell gets activated, you have systemic activation, production of inflammatory mediators, underlying toxicities like vascular leak syndrome, which can be fatal in patients. So here's a molecule that you only want to target it to the tumor specific T cell, not every T cell. So we took advantage of that in the, in the first iteration of the platform called Q100 series, the first proof of concept beachhead molecule for that that's currently in the patient's showing monotherapy activity goes after HPV-driven epithelial cancers, human papilloma virus-driven epithelial cancers. In our case, we've gone into late-stage head and neck cancer patients that have failed several lines of prior therapies, including checkpoints. And we've only focused on those T cells that are specific for an HPV viral tumor antigen. So when the virus infects the epithelial cell and, and, and transforms them into uh, cancer phenotypes that are viral proteins that then become tumor antigens that are expressed there. We know these segments. We have selectively directed IL-2 to those T cells that harbor T cell receptors that recognize HPV antigens to selectively activate them to destroy what is then the cancer cell that is harboring these viral tumor antigens. That's the first product. But essentially, it de-risks the entire platform because once you have uh, clinical activity signals like we are already seeing, and safety signals, by the way. And by the way, with, with Q101, our lead molecule, we have dosed IL-2 to an unprecedented level. We've dosed this up to eight milligrams per kilogram, where the approved dose is about 37 micrograms per kilogram. And we've dosed up to eight mix per kg with no MTD. It's an IL-2 variant. We've modified it based on structural con uh, considerations and attenuated it. But the principle is we've been able to direct it to the T cells that matter. Now, the only thing difference between that first clinical molecule and everything else that follows is a tumor anagenic T-cell epitope, which is about a nine amino acid peptide. Everything else remains the same, same IL-2, same framework. So the second molecule that's about to enter the clinic is due for an IND filing in first quarter of this year is against Wilms tumor one. It's an oncofetal antigen. The one behind that target, targets mutated KRAS, which is again a foreign determinant of a primary tumor driver but it's the same IL-2 framework. So once you de-risk that, there's an enormous amount of uh, comfort one gains and confidence with the platform de-risking both around safety and tolerability, but also importantly around clinical efficacy. And to show monotherapy activity in, in, in cancer immunotherapy is a rare event, as, you, as you're well aware. I mean, mm -hmm. the patients that have all failed checkpoints and multiple other therapies coming into an experimental medicine um, uh, therapy like ours. And, and we're seeing as monotherapy what we consider a great responses. We've seen a durable uh, partial response already in a recommended phase two dose. That patient's been on the study now for, gosh, north of 40 weeks. Continuing on with tumor regression, we've seen stable diseases with tumors going down over time. Several patients being on study for an overall clinical benefit rate of about 46%. Fantastic. Now, that's kind of where I want to continue with my next question here is, and you know, we've certainly covered really positive results so far, but what else is going on in your clinical pipeline and any other results to share to date? 
So we've got, uh, Aaron, what I spoke about is the late stage monotherapy trial in head and neck cancer. Mm-hmm. We've also got a trial going on in the front line. So in, in recurrent metastatic head and neck cancer in combination with Merck's anti-PD-1. If you think about checkpoint inhibitors for a second, we believe mechanistically, and we've published data on this in preclinical models and, and other systems, the, 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 the application of a checkpoint is a viable approach only when you have the relevant anti-tumor T cells in place. In other words, they are under control of the checkpoint inhibitor. In absence of the T cell repertoire, the application of a checkpoint is a futile endeavor. Our platform is a precursor to that. We induce these T cells. We expand these T cells. We know we can localize them in the tumor lesion by patient biopsies that we've reported on. So we expect to see significant synergy in addition to the monotherapy that we've already shown in this setting. And indeed, in that first cohort, the data that we presented, for example, in the second cohort, there are three out of three patients tumors were were, were regressing on the initial scans. And we'll update that data very soon. One of them was already an unconfirmed PR at the point that we've presented this data at SITC last week. And that continues to sort of gain traction and and strengthen. And we'll be disclosing additional very positive metrics in the near future. But that's an example of a therapy going, not only demonstrating monotherapy activity, but moving in frontline. We've got a third trial ongoing in neoadjuvant setting in the same in, in the same indication, except they're locally advanced patients. So the tumor hasn't yet metastasized. And the advantage of doing that is these patients are eligible for resection of the cancer, which allows us to have frank access to the tumor mass to be able to quantify the gold standard metrics of successful cancer immunotherapy, T-cell infiltration, tumor necrosis, inflammatory signatures, and so on and so forth. We've seen these in, in a few patients. We've managed to get biopsies in the late stage setting but to be able to have this in the neoadjuvant is very good. So that's just an HPV-driven head and neck cancer. Now, if you think about it, there's many other cancers that are driven by HPV. Cervical is almost 100%, anal, penile, vulva. So then we can expand into adjacent indications as we build this initial proof of concept. Then Wilms tumor one is Q102. That's about to enter the clinic. It's due for an IND filing in the first quarter of this year. That particular molecule can... Uh, Wilms tumor one, by the way, is a broadly expressed tumor antigen across a variety of solid and hematological malignancies, all the way from lung, colorectal, pancreatic, ovarian, uh, multiple myeloma, AML, et cetera. So we see a tremendous opportunity with that particular asset. Then the mutated KRAS behind that, of course, KRAS is the big driver for lung, pancreatic, and colorectal as well. So even in these first sort of, you know, three distinct uh, tumor antigen classes, we see a breadth of application and a breadth of opportunity uh, in, in sort of serving the patients at need. Good, good. And I think what I hear you saying underlying as well is that the there's real versatility within your platform, which is kind of what I want to touch on next. Talk us a little bit through, talk us through more about your platform. What's expected for its expansion, if if anything, and then the certainly the versatility that allows you to treat all of these these sure. cancers that you're talking about. So the one of the advantages, Aaron, is the modularity. And by what that I mean by 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 that, what I mean is once you've got a framework in place for a particular signal like the IL two one hundred series, it's it's very easy for us to just keep on swapping the T cell antigens to change the indication at will. So to give you an example, the HPV asset that's now in the clinic, Q101, 
versus the Wilms tumor one that is about to enter, they are 99% sequence identical. The only difference is one is directing HPV T cells, the other is directing WT1 T cells. Everything else is conserved. So again, when you think about de-risking, learnings, regulatory strategies, starting doses, safety, there's a fair amount that's already been gained by that first experience. Similarly, bringing in different HLA alleles is very modular, and we've demonstrated that, for example, with KRAS. So the platform was deliberately built with a sense of modularity and flexibility because we wanted to accomplish two goals, have broad patient coverage and have broad tumor antigenic coverage with a signal like IL-2 that could be deployed extensively. Sure. Okay. That makes perfect sense. Thank you. Uh, we have reached kind of the, the end of our formal uh, question set, but I do hope that, you know, maybe perhaps later this year, you can come back and give us an update on exactly how uh, all of your clinical trials are going and bring us up to speed that way. Yeah, we'd be happy to. Thank you for the opportunity. This has been a pleasure. Good, good. But I have one question left. Uh, at the end of every episode, I talk to my guests about uh, what they're doing when they're not in the lab or the office. And so just to kind of get a glimpse of, you know, who they are really uh, when they're not in the office or the lab. So what do you like to do on the weekend? So Aaron, uh, we've got three boys. Uh, so every day is a Monday, as I say it. This, this, <laughs> there are really no weekends, but we're, we're, we're busy with our three boys. We've got a high schooler, a middle schooler, and, and one in the elementary school. Uh, we're busy sort of uh, keeping them busy and, and, and keeping our life sane. But I, I do enjoy spending a, a lot of time in their activities uh, at sort of different levels. And, and that's what sort of takes up our, our weekends. I agree with you 100%. I'm sort of in the same boat. And it is basically attending their activities and shuttling them to places. Uh, we're kind of like an Uber service. That's so exactly right. Except there's no, no, no paycheck associated. Oh, right. <laughs> right, right. But I'll take it because one day it's not going to be here and I'll miss it. So exactly, exactly. Uh, that's awesome. Well, uh, listeners, that concludes another episode of Cell and Gene, the podcast. Thank you so much to Q Biopharma's president and CSO, Anish Suri, uh, for his time and insight. Anish, this was wonderful. Thank you so much. No, pleasure. Thank you for having us. All right, listeners, thanks again. Talk soon. Mm-hmm.